Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The La Crosse Public Library Archives presents Dark Lacrosse Stories, a series in collaboration with the La Crosse Tribune. Dark Lacrosse is a suite of programs that feature the seedier side of lacrosse history and also include a downtown walking tour, a trolley tour, and an annual stage production with new content each year. Well, of course she killed him. That woman killed my brother. In our last episode, we began the intriguing story of the mysterious Mary Ann Parker, who, according to the La Crosse Daily Press newspaper, upon her death in 1901, was, quote, the most celebrated recluse La Crosse has ever known. While seemingly destitute at the end of her life, nearly 30 years after the death of her husband, John, the trial over her contested will brought to light a considerable wealth that benefited several local organizations and confidants. Jilted family members from the East Coast descended upon La Crosse to share their side of her story, including John's sister, Mary Laverick. I'll tell you exactly what I told the police. It all started in the winter of 1872, almost 30 years ago. I kept getting these stilted letters from my older brother John here in La Crosse. They didn't sound like him at all. I was so worried that it was haunting me. I'd have night terrors. Then finally, I got a letter dated February 10th, 1873. It read, Dear brother and sister, I suppose you received two letters and papers from us lately. The reason for my writing is because when Marianne broke her specs, she wanted me to write at once, so I did. When I wanted to speak of my health, she told me to say I was sick with a cold. I let it go at that. When I wrote the second time, I put in some more serious words about my health, and now the truth is I have not been out of the house from that day to this and a long time before. I state this to show that I am very bad. My legs and body are very much swelled, and warm weather is best for them, and so it looks as if I shall be a prisoner until spring. I cannot learn what is the disease, but sometimes I am discouraged. I am writing in a hurry, but must state that I have willed all to Marianne, but that is not my trouble. It is that I am afraid that if I were to have a long and severe sickness, she would make a hard nurse. I think she would go for killing or curing quick. If I mend soon, I will inform you. If I get worse, some friend will inform you. Affectionately, your brother, John Parker. Well, I started packing my bags as soon as I put the letter down. I told my husband that we were going to La Crosse, Wisconsin, and we were on a train within three hours. It was going to be a long trip from Patterson, New Jersey. We also brought our local police chief with us. You just never know about these small towns out west. I had no idea if the La Crosse police would be capable of handling a high-profile case like this, and I wanted us to have protection from someone we knew and trusted in case Marianne tried anything. 
I have never underestimated what that woman is capable of. Well, when we got to lacrosse, John looked terrible. He had swelling, watery flesh and was as thin as wallpaper. We took him from his unsightly room and into a hotel downtown, the Tremont House. A reporter here in town, as well as your Sheriff Simonton and Mayor Van Steinwick, met us there, and John told us everything. Marianne had gotten greedy. Even though they lived a comfortable lifestyle, she would demand things and then go sell them to get her hands on a few measly dollars. How desperate was this woman? She spent that winter starving John, giving him poison to make him vomit up the little food she did give him. She wouldn't even allow a fire in his room to keep him warm. As John told us this, everyone in that room was ashamed that no one in town was aware of the true state of affairs. They could hardly look John or me in the eye. An officer was sent back to gather a few of John's things, some worn-out clothing, and a tin can of $14 he had been hoarding in the wall for years, ever since Marianne stopped letting him into their finances. We decided it was best to leave Lacrosse as soon as possible and get back to New Jersey, where he would be safe from his prying and murderous wife. By the time Mary Laverick got back to the East Coast with her brother, only 15 days after she had received his dire letter, John was in even worse condition and it was clear he wasn't going to recover. As soon as John was settled in New Jersey, his family helped him write Mary Ann out of his will so that his estate would be divided equally between Laverick and two other brothers. He signed that will with a lawyer present. He died within three days of arriving back in New Jersey. John's family was sure that Mary Ann would be put in jail for murder back in the cross. John's official cause of death was Bright's disease, but a physician told the family that he had traces of poisons in his system that can cause Bright's disease. Upon investigation, pills were found in the Parker's lacrosse home that contained these poisons. It is unknown whether Mary Ann Parker was ever officially charged or even accused of any wrongdoing in her husband's death. What is known is that she contested John's last will, written on his deathbed in New Jersey at the encouragement of his siblings, claiming that he was insane at the time he wrote it and under duress from his siblings. After two years in court, Mary Ann Parker won and got to keep her husband's money. John Parker was buried in New Jersey with his first wife. If only he had listened to me. I've known from the very beginning that Mary Ann was a good-for-nothing gold digger. You see, before she met my brother John, Mary Ann was working as a domestic in my friend's home in Brooklyn, just across the Hudson from my home in Jersey. She overheard me talking about how my brother John's first wife died, and she deduced that he was a wealthy man. Well, a few weeks went by, and Marianne called on me in my home. Under false pretenses, she asked if she could stay inside while she waited for a ride. She said her name was Marianne Jacques, and I recognized that name immediately. She had recently been in the New York headlines for poisoning and killing her own mother. When I asked if that was her, she said it was, but there was no truth in the charge. In that case, I remember that an old woman had died under suspicious circumstances. One of her daughters requested the body be exhumed, and they found a large quantity of arsenic in her stomach. It was suspected that the second daughter, Marianne, 
was to blame because she had recently persuaded their mother to rewrite her will in Marianne's favor. However, there was insufficient evidence and Marianne was released. Now that I've heard what her niece, that Cecilia Savage, had to say, I'm realizing that Marianne took off with that money after her mother died. She denied that there was any truth in the case, but I wanted her out of my house, obviously. Unbeknownst to me, that manipulative woman got my nephew to instead take her to John's home. When she got there, she said she was a friend of mine. Can you believe that? He was smitten immediately, and they were married within months in 1851. Nothing I could say could get him to change his mind. And then, I don't know how, Marianne convinced him to leave New Jersey and move west to La Crosse, Wisconsin. They spent 18 years in La Crosse before she killed him. That woman was cunning. She now has gotten away with two murders and has stolen thousands of dollars out of wills that she got written in her favor. She's charmed judges and juries into her favor. What next? Let me guess. She's going to be remembered in La Crosse as some kind of patron saint because of all the money she gave away in her own will? (laughs) I doubt it. For years, La Crosse newspapers found opportunities to write about the infamous recluse, often referring to her as Toady Parker and sensationalizing her story. As the years went on, she became more and more celebrated. In 1930, the La Crosse Tribune wrote an article about the old Parker house that stood at the southwest corner of 8th and State Streets. The Parker house was raised in 1928 and replaced with a series of bungalows, which were later torn down. The block is now mostly occupied by Burns Park and Park Bank. The lone house that remains on that block, an Italianate brick house near the corner of 8th and State Streets, was the house Parker had built for the First Baptist Church before her death. In January 1952, the First Baptist Church celebrated its centennial anniversary and had two full-page sections in the La Crosse Tribune to educate the public on its history. In these articles, they partly attributed their growth to Parker. They wrote that she presented the house to the parishioners as a gift in 1896. They called it the Parker Memorial Parsonage until they sold it in the 1940s to purchase a new parsonage. They mentioned nothing about Parker's history or the controversy surrounding her will and the thousands of dollars she left to them and their trustee, Thomas Shimon, in 1901. After the judge ruled in favor of the local defendants as beneficiaries of Parker's will, Cecilia Savage and her siblings appealed to the circuit court, as she promised they would. This appeal took place in 1902, a year after the first court case, and it had the same result. Parker's will would stand with Thomas Shimon as the main beneficiary, among others. Sixty years after the court cases around Parker's will, A 1962 La Crosse Tribune article summarized the cases and reported 54 witnesses, among them some of the most prominent people in town, some who had known Mrs. Parker in her happy days, who scoffed at the charges she was mentally incompetent. The article went on to casually mention that Queen Victoria had been an acquaintance of Mary Ann Parker. Lawrence Kluver was cited to be a peaker 
who had looked through the windows to see Shimon comforting Parker. The attitude had been completely changed. Parker had become a sensationalized victim of her own circumstances. Because nearly all of the primary sources that survived Marianne Parker's life are newspaper accounts, and even those are not complete, the facts remain murky. It was easy for facts to become distorted as the case went on, yet journalists treated all claims as facts. Although there were a few local newspapers during the 1870s when John Parker died, none that survived mentioned the case whatsoever. The only known newspaper articles about the alleged poisonings were printed in New Jersey and New York, and nearly all of those used John's sister, Mary Laverick, as their source of information. These articles, all of which have biased perspectives, make it seem certain that Mary Ann Parker was going to be arrested and charged with murder. However, after his death, John Parker's siblings declined the opportunity to do a post-mortem, which would have been their opportunity to prove that it was poison that killed their brother. Instead of being charged with murder in 1873, Mary Ann Parker became a recluse and a target for abuse and speculation until her death in 1901, when she became a sensationalized character whose story gets more and more complicated. The questions still stand. Did Parker murder her mother in the 1850s and disappear with the money meant for her sister? If she did, why didn't her niece Cecilia Savage bring attention to the suspicion in the 1901 court case after her death? Did she poison her husband in 1873? What evidence, or lack of evidence, kept her from being charged with murder? What led the lacrosse community to nearly forget this scandal by the time of her death in 1901? What led local judges to make the decisions they made? What didn't the newspapers tell us? The only thing we know for sure is that we'll never know the truth behind the life of Mary Ann Parker. And now I'd like to welcome in Jenny DeRocher, Associate Librarian in the Archives Department, who did some of the initial research for this story. Oftentimes, when we study and tell stories from history, we treat it as fact. But it's important to discuss how we can only share the information that was kept and preserved through archive materials like newspapers, photographs, court records, birth and death records, and so on. Humans keep historical knowledge or memory that was recorded in writing or passed down through oral tradition. Archivists and the repositories they manage contain the information that was preserved and given to them, or that they sought out to preserve. As a result, much knowledge and community memory is lost. In studying history, we can only tell the stories from this preserved information. There are many stories we cannot tell. Archives today suffer because archivists and other keepers of records have historically had the same biases that we see in the rest of society including racism, classism, ableism, homophobia, sexism, etc. And this has shaped the historical record. And on top of that, historical records themselves contain biases. Newspaper reporters wrote to give readers the inside scoop, sometimes gathering their information from unreliable witnesses or other biased individuals. Some of the characters you've met in Dark Lacrosse stories are created solely from newspaper accounts. In reflecting on the Marianne Parker story, I challenge you to think about these unreliable characters. 
As you hear their words, think about why they're unreliable. Whose voices did we hear from? Whose stories will we never know or understand? What information was left out? I think for some, or maybe even most of the dark lacrosse stories, we can walk away understanding the events and our personal feelings and opinions of those events. But when it comes to the life of Marianne Parker, I suspect it's a universal experience to walk away not knowing how to feel, not knowing who to trust, not knowing where biases lie within the sources. When I was researching Marianne Parker, I spent countless hours trying to find records that could back up the claims in the newspapers, like the report that she'd be arrested for murdering her husband, or the claim that she poisoned her mom when she was younger. However, I never found anything. I hit dead ends in nearly every direction. It was honestly one of the most frustrating research projects I've encountered. And it was a good reminder that record keepers in our community couldn't, or wouldn't, save everything for us to better understand people like Mary Ann Parker. But the curiosity I held for Marianne Parker kept me going in my search for answers. What motivated her? Why did the community treat her the way they did? Why did Thomas Shimon stand by her with such dedication for eight years? How was I going to tell her story without sensationalizing her any further and being respectful of everyone involved? In case I haven't said it enough, I want to emphasize that there is no way to know the truth of this case from the currently available archival record. After reading all of the available primary sources, I cannot say who I think spoke truthfully and who spoke with the motive of money or greed rather than justice, and I hope that you feel similarly torn. All I really know is that while researching her, I managed to start caring about Marianne Parker in an odd way. Researching her life made me want to travel in time so I could talk to her and form my own opinion about her character. But alas, we can only rely on primary sources, not time travel. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.